What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Nadav Kiesen, the founder of Riverside, a tool that allows you to record podcast episodes like we're doing right now. So you just create a room, you send people the invite link and they join, and you click record, and that's pretty much it. At the end of it, you've got like a high quality audio files and video files that are locally recorded for everybody. And I love it. I've been using it for indie hackers for the last year. Nadav, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. So a year ago, actually, I was just pulling up our chats. You were messaging me pretty much every single day. <laughs> like, hey, Cortland, when are you gonna try Riverside? You know, I'm an indie hacker. I've been building this cool thing. And at the time, I think the way you described it was, it's a podcast recording tool Wow, it's even longer than a year ago. So October 2019, you said, Hi, Cortland, love your podcasts. I built a podcast recording tool where listeners can call in live and ask their questions to the host. Would you give it a try? And then I, I didn't respond <laughs> to that first message, but you were relentless. <laughs> so the way, if I go all the way back, indeed, at the time when we, we were still like experimenting, what are we, are we really building? Probably what, what's not even the right way, but I reached out to everyone like who, who is inspiring me. Although actually, even if you think it's cool, that doesn't mean anything. Like the market at the end depends whether it's going to work or not. <laughs> right. But you were super focused on trying yeah. to make me think it was cool. How much revenue were you doing back then, back in like March 2020? Do you remember? Probably we had one kind of paying customer who scammed us. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have a, a payment system set up. So we had just someone, we sent an invoice to that person. It was an influencer on Instagram. She had like 500,000 followers. My girlfriend thought she could be interested in using our tool. So we, we, we got her to use uh, Riverside, but she never actually paid us. <laughs> so we had her and then we launched on uh, Product Hunt, I think around 14th March. And then um, we had potentially two paying customers. We didn't, the payment system apparently wasn't working well. So uh, like we figured out a week later, so maybe we had a bit more, but <laughs> we had like two paying customers uh, when we launched on, uh, on Product Hunt. So that, that says a lot, even Product Hunt, like it's, it's cool for yourself, but it doesn't really, uh, do much for certain products. I didn't know that. I didn't know you got scammed by your very first should have been paying customer. Like she kept kept signing up for the free trial. Uh, we didn't really have a limitation at the point. And, and how much money are you making now? I guess what, like a year and, and 10 days later than your launch? Uh, yeah, it doesn't really make sense for us to share our revenue numbers now. We raised money from Alex Sohanian, uh, like a series A round. So definitely a lot more than two paying customers. Would it be okay if I say it, it's a lot? <laughs> It's extreme. I think it's a lot. It always depends like who you compare it with. So for me at this point, it maybe it doesn't even feel that much, but that's me being spoiled. But it's definitely, definitely something that would have never in my wildest dream, I have imagined uh, the point where we are at right now. Yeah. It's pretty crazy because I talked to a lot of indie hackers who, you know, they're working on stuff for years just to get to the point of like ramen profitable, you know, or just to get to the point where like, you know, they can like survive. And you guys, as you and your brother were the, the founders of Riverside, um, yeah. have just in like a year gotten blown that out of the water and gone to the point where you're like a pretty major company and your just growth trajectory is insane. I know we haven't gone into like exactly how much money that is, but like, how would you say doing that has changed your life? Like, do you feel, <laughs> do you feel rich? Do you feel like, you know, you're eating caviar and stuff? Like what's, what's the money going to? There's only one thing which has, I feel okay about doing, which is I order a lot of food. <laughs> so like twice a day I order food, which is uh, ridiculous. 
but that's uh, other than that, like uh, nothing really has changed. It, it is also not the case, right? Okay, the company is making great money, but it's not like I'm uh, personally having a huge salary or anything like that. So in that sense, nothing has changed. Even more so, it's not like once you're there, you're not gonna be like ah, now I, I this is the end goal. No, it, the end goal hasn't <laughs> reached. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Sahil Levengia from Gumroad, and he's like very public about his revenue numbers. They like tweet out the revenue numbers all the time on Twitter. They have kind of a model where like they help creators make money and then they take a cut. And I think they're, I don't know exactly how much they're making, but it might be in the millions, I'm pretty sure, maybe even a month or something. It's just interesting to talk to him about it because like Gumroad is making so much money, but he doesn't pay himself like a huge salary and like it's a valuable company, but like for him to really see most of that, like he would have to sell the company, which he's like not really ready to do. Yeah, I think same for you, right, actually? Yeah, kind of the same for me. Like, okay, well, Indie Hackers was never making anything like what you're you're making or what Gumroad is making. You know, I think when I sold the Stripe, we were making like seven thousand dollars a month, and it was just me. But I think there's like a there's a misconception sometimes that if you have a really big company and you're doing however many millions or whatever in revenue, then like you're probably just set for life. And the reality is like, well, you're probably reinvesting in your company. You're paying for employees. You're paying for growth. You're paying for servers. You're paying to get bigger. And you might just be living the same type of life that everybody else is living kind of nervous that like, hey, it all might go to zero. Like it might not work out, right? And you might not have some huge financial success despite the fact that your company itself had really great revenue numbers. Initially, when I started, I was even more like optimistic than I'm now in a way, because now I have got a lot to lose, right? When I had nothing, I was just like, all right, let's get to $2,000 per month per person, per founder, so me and my brother. If we have that, holy shit, right? Then I can live off Riverside. And so any any paying customer would be would be amazing. And now I've got, of course, more paying customers. So it's in a way you feel less rich. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about how you got here, because you and your brother have been working on stuff for a long time. You're both pretty young. I think you're you're 26, 26. Yeah. And your brother's 22. And you guys have been working on projects for like five years or something like he was a teenager and you're like a 21 year old and you guys are like putting together some sort of like debate platform. So walk me through like how you guys got started being indie hackers. Yeah, so me and my brother were always building a lot of stuff. For example, we had this SAT SAT course in high school where we didn't even do our own SATs. So we hired teachers, stuff like that. That never really took off. Uh, the previous like biggest project that we did together was a debating platform where politicians could debate with live video. So the idea there was we bring different-minded people together, and often it's just politicians, and then people could watch these debates and interact with these politicians, ask their questions directly to politicians. We got some pretty cool politicians uh, to debate on our platform, which I would, that was my responsibility. Get this, so that's why you know I've been relentless with you. I, I, I mastered that skill, being relentless. And my brother basically built a whole tech around that whole debating platform. That was going quite well in the sense that we had some big politicians, but never really... Let's say when we stopped the, uh, the, uh, the debating platform, no one ever asked us, hey, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of a wake-up call. Uh, and then we decided, wouldn't it be cool to have like a, a podcast uh, situation where people can also call in during the podcast? So a bit similar to Clubhouse. I wouldn't, in a, I wouldn't definitely not say we built Clubhouse because otherwise it would have been Clubhouse. But the idea was similar. Execution was not. And then we launched that with uh, zero validation, unlike uh, many of your podcasts uh, suggest you should do. We just thought it was cool. And we reached out to a bunch of people. And then, it, yeah, all things started from there, basically. It's funny you had this debating platform, because when I was a kid, I read this sci-fi book. Have you ever read Ender's Game? 
it's this cool sci-fi book. They made a movie that was pretty good, but not as good. But it's about like these child geniuses who end up like being groomed to like fight these aliens or whatever. But like the main kid goes off and does that, and his brother and his sister are also these child geniuses, and they kind of start this online debating platform called the Nets or something, and like they are like constantly like you know debating politics and philosophy and they become like super celebrities and eventually like end up like i'm just ruining the whole book for anyone who's listening if you want to read Ender's game don't listen (laughs) but they end up like ruling the world basically because of this debating platform and i remember being like 12 years old and reading this and it's like this is awesome i got to start my own like online debating platform it's going to be super huge uh so it's cool to see that you actually did that and you actually got real politicians on there like talking about meaningful issues no that that was definitely cool like that, that was the only like validation we had that we got. To, we probably didn't have any viewers, but we had the politicians debate to each other. <laughs> it's one of the, like, if with podcasting, for example, like, I want to do more debate episodes because there's just something really interesting about hearing people go at it. You know, like, it's, it's, it's fine when people are, like, you know, constantly agreeing and it's like you can learn some stuff. It's the same effect on Hacker News, actually. Like, the culture on Hacker News is that if you ever leave a comment, what you're supposed to do is disagree with the person who you're replying to. And so, like, anytime there's a story on Hacker News, you use the story, the first comment disagrees with that, the next comment disagrees with that comment, and so on and so forth. And it's actually super interesting to read because you always get to see both sides and learn, like, the most. And so I'm surprised that more people didn't tune in to hear what was going on with these politicians debating because it's, it's just naturally captivating. No, I, I completely agree. Our generation maybe doesn't care as much about politics anymore, but I think personally, debate is super interesting. I, although I don't really agree with someone like uh, Ben Shapiro, but even just hear him out, see what he has to say to sharpen my own thought process, I think is super interesting. And so actually the idea was also what makes Twitter often fun is I think also when people are like kind of fighting with each other as well, other than just agreeing. With, uh, but so the idea was like bringing Twitter fights to like the debating platform. That was also <laughs> kind of the idea. <laughs> I like that, that perspective. You make yourself mentally sharper by hearing the other side. Because there's also like a lot of people who feel the exact opposite. Like that what you should do is you should tune out the other side in any situation and not listen to what they have to say. But I'm very much like you. I always want to hear what the other side has to say. Because how do I know that my own opinions and my own thinking are sharp if I'm not listening to someone like attack them and then go at them? And it's not for everybody, but I also enjoy the, the occasional Twitter fight. So you eventually pivot to this, uh, this idea where you're going to do podcasting. I guess podcast recording, but it was like very live. So it's like, come on and your fans can like watch you record the thing live and they can ask questions. And when you were pitching it to me a year ago, like that was the entire pitch. It was all about like doing a live podcast. And that actually was what kind of turned me off because I was like, "Ah, I don't care about live. I just want to record my podcast. Like that's all I care about. Like I just want to record it and then put it out. And the reason why I thought that was because every time I'd ever done anything live in the past, it never got more than like three or four or five percent of the viewers or listeners as the actual recording did. So I might put out an episode of Indie Hackers and it might get like 30,000 downloads in six weeks. But if I do it live, then I'm like tweeting and I'm trying to get people to it. And the room's got like eight people in it. <laughs> and I'm like embarrassed. I'm like, ah, show is much bigger. And so I was like pretty hesitant to do it. And then I think you and I ended up doing like a Q&A or something that actually went pretty well. And people did join and ask questions. And it was like people that I recognized, like Justin Jackson joined and was asking questions. And I think Peter Levels might have asked a few Sahil questions. As well. Yeah, yeah, Sahil was in here. So it was actually really cool because you were able to get like really interesting people to come to come watch. I still think it's cool, but it never really got validated by the market other than the clubhouse kind of nailed it. But so I think it was cool that interactive element, like that's the cool thing about life. If you're just have live and you're not really interacting, having people that are people that are watching, there's no point of doing it live. And I agree, like 
life is hard. It's all about synchronous, right? So you need the right time and the right moment. People need to be tuning in. Uh, so it's definitely more difficult. And that's also what we saw and why we moved away from that whole life element positioning on our on our platform and more of a, like a technology platform where people just come to record really high quality audio and video. Like you had a vision, right? You were like, I think live is cool. This is going to work. And then you had a reality, which was like, people don't necessarily think this is cool. How do you even recognize that they don't think it's cool? And how did you make the decision to change? So how did we start was we had, so the idea was actually, it came from the debating platform. What was possible, people could interact live with these politicians. Like I said, it was pretty cool. Like I could ask a question directly to a high level politician and hey, what about this? And that was, that concept we thought, okay, we need to bring that to, to a podcast. So we did that. I started reaching out to a bunch of people, including you, uh, some other people, and people literally just told me like, I don't, I don't give a shit about, about this live element. <laughs> I care more about the uh, recording. And uh, it could have been that I didn't reach the right people as well, but that, that definitely, I kept hearing the feedback coming back to me. That's what made us realize we should change the whole positioning on our, on our website, uh, more as the recording. Because in my mind, I was like, yeah, well, you can also record and go live. What, what, what do you care? But the people felt, oh no, Riverside, oh no, that's a live stream platform. But meanwhile, we had this great tech recording as well. So that's why we like moved away from this whole live, live element as well. Although I think it's still undervalued because imagine the two of us are recording right now and you just have backstage some loyal listeners listening while we're recording. And afterwards, we can still repurpose this recording uh, in, the, in the same way you're doing right now. But that's personal and it doesn't not really validate it. <laughs> I, th I think the same thing, honestly, like Telegram came out with, uh, so Telegram is like a chat app similar to WhatsApp or um, like Facebook Messenger or something. You and I talk on Telegram all the time and they just came out with a sort of audio chat. So you can have like a group chat in Telegram, start an audio chat at the top of it. And then anyone in that group can just pop into the audio chat, start talking, et cetera. I talked to my brother and we do indie hackers planning like, every day on this thing. And we have a chat room with my mom in it, so she'll pop in and just listen. And then you and I are part of like the work in progress chat group. So a couple of weeks ago, we were in this like audio chat thing. And when I saw this, I, I started getting really excited about live chat because I was like, well, what if I recorded my podcasts for Indie Hackers and Telegram? And then I had this group that was just like all the coolest Indie Hackers. So they were always in the group. So they would instantly be notified whenever I'm recording a new podcast episode and they could pop in and listen and maybe ask questions. And I thought that would be super cool. And so maybe like the hard part for it is just that notification where on other platforms, like if I released something live, what I would have to do is like tweet about it and try to advertise it and like push it so that the live room isn't dead. Whereas if I have like this sort of captive chat group that's already like already active and people are chatting and they just get a notification on their phone and it says like, hey, there's a, a podcast going on or a call, like maybe that would like relieve me of the burden of having to sort of promote it. No, I definitely agree. I think there's something there. It's like a hybrid model. You're not only doing this whole life element uh, and you're still engaging with the people you, you like to engage with. And then uh, afterwards, you still repurpose it. So I definitely think Telegram, sp Twitter Spaces, Clubhouse, uh, these are definitely interesting concepts. So at some point, you're like, all right, screw this live stuff. No one, no one likes it. You know, at least the way it's implemented right now, it's not growing the way we want. It's pretty easy at that point to just give up. I mean, a lot of people will be like, okay, well, this is our vision. It's not working. Why did you decide to go into what you're doing now, which is just to be a podcast recording tool? There was one big difference with all our previous projects. And so what we had one paying customer who didn't really pay us, but we had that paying customer that's like, holy shit, someone, someone on the internet paid us uh, to do something. I also really, really, really believed about like uh, what we were doing. So I thought there was something there. So that was a huge difference this time. Having that validation from this one paying customer, although it was only one, 
and my internal really conviction that this is really cool. And it was also the newest thing we were working on. And then we got really lucky when the way it's bad, we, the COVID hit. So then we really realized, wow, this remote recording might be really huge. There's a whole line of online podcast recording tools that at least I've used. So when I started Indie Hackers, like the podcast, maybe four years ago now, I was using a tool called Zencaster. And Zencaster was super cool because it was browser-based, just like Riverside. So it's the same thing. Invite people to the room, they join. They don't have to have like Zoom installed on their computer or anything like that. And then it will record local audio files, which means that like typically when you record something over Zoom or something, you're getting the audio that's coming over the internet. So if the person's internet connection is slow or really just the audio just gets degraded over the internet no matter what, it's crappy quality. Whereas with Zencaster, it would record it on their computer, their audio, it would record your audio on your computer, and it would upload both tracks automatically. And it was like magic. So I was super happy about using Zencaster. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then maybe a couple years ago, another tool came out called Squadcast. And Squadcast was identical to Zencaster, but it had video. And so you could actually look at the person you're talking to, which makes it like much less awkward, much cooler when you're having the conversations. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to hop ship and go to Squadcast because it's the same thing, but I can see who I'm talking to. And I use that. And then you were sort of the third iteration where you're like, we're not only going to let you see the video, but you can also record video with Riverside. And it's the same way. And so I was like, oh, this is super cool. Because like, what if I want to put my podcast on YouTube, et cetera. And so you convinced me to jump ship from Squadcast. And like, that's where I've been for the last year, basically. Yeah, I hope there's not going to be a fourth player when you move away from Riverside <laughs> to the fourth. You got to be your own fourth player. You got to like disrupt yourself and be the next stage. So actually, it's, it's, it's really interesting uh, how this went. We were the first to record video on the entire internet uh, of the 4K video. And the, the way we got to this to this uh, local video thought is we recorded video over the internet and local audio. So the audio is really good, but the video is not really good. But then actually you, you were having problems with the internet uh, video we were having. It was out of sync. It was not great. Then we thought, ah, shit, we need to fix this. Like we need to make sure he, he is getting good video. So that made us think, okay, we need to get the same concept for audio for video as well, because it made no sense for us. Why not repurpose the content you're already recording in all areas, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you can put it out there. And uh, that's what really made us think, okay, we need to go all in on video. Yeah, it's interesting like, thinking about how competitive the, the space is, because it's like, you were just like two indie hackers at the time, right? It's like you and your brother, I don't think you had, and you're like pioneering like the first online platform to let you record like, you know, high quality video for like podcasts and stuff. And no one else is doing it. Like literally no one else had like, had either thought of it, like you're just on the bleeding edge of technology. How was it that you two got there first? You know, why aren't big companies already doing this stuff? I think it's a matter of focus. And it's also, it's also quite difficult. It's my brother who figured it out to do it. Because essentially what you're doing is you're recording uh, really big files in the browser and uploading at the same time. And uh, a company like Zoom has a focus on having a great call and not a, a great recording. So it's a different focus angle. And a company like Google Meet uh, has also a different focus. They are like making sure that it's reliable for 100 people in the call. And we have a different focus. We have the focus, okay, it's all about the recording. Actually, right now, the call we're having now with Cortland, I can see him as a bit fuzzy. It's not amazing. But afterwards, when I look at the recording, that's where we really stand out. So it's, I think it's a matter of focus. And it's also, truthfully, it's difficult to do this whole uh, local recording and making it reliable. I think that's the difficult part about it, making it also reliable. That's so smart that you just, because you do like sacrifice some things. Like when I pop into Riverside, it says, hey, the video quality might be a little fuzzy. And it's because like, you don't care. Like that's not 
the purpose isn't for like the live video to be amazing. It's for the recording to be amazing. And the purpose isn't to, you know, sometimes work. The purpose is like people are recording this, which means it needs to be a hundred percent reliable. Like I can't quit Riverside and say the call is done and then realize I lost all my recordings because then I'm never going to use it again. I'm going to say bad things. And so your ability to basically not focus on other things and only do this kind of gave you, uh, I don't know, I guess superpowers in a way where <laughs> two ND hackers could do something that no one else was doing. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's also like a lesson to any hackers. Like if you, if you find that focus point, go double, double down on the focus, even though there might be competitors in the market, you just need to have some kind of edge over competitors. There's also, there's this concept of moats. You know, how do you build a business where no one's going to catch up to you or the competition can't really eat your lunch or something? And there's all these different things that go into building a moat. Like it's, it's really difficult to do, especially as an indie hacker. Uh, and it usually doesn't even matter. Like if you're super small, you might as well just like not even care about the competition, but you're getting to the point where like your size is pretty big and the competition does matter in some respect. And I think, you know, some of the, the normal moats, like if you look at indie hackers, there's network effects where if somebody wanted to build a clone of indie hackers, it would be very hard for them to do because we have this community forum where the more people who join, the more valuable it gets. And so if someone else starts from scratch, like their community forum is not going to be as good as ours because it's just too small. And then you have things like economies of scale or like the more money you make, you know, the cheaper you can buy parts for or something because you're buying more parts and then you can make things cheaper than your competition and compete on price. So that's an economy of scale. And there's also like technological leaps where you just have some sort of technology that other people don't. And for whatever reason, either can't build what you're, do you're doing or they, they just don't build it. And like, that's the one I always tell people like, don't worry about that. You're an indie hacker. You're like, you're not going to have that. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And like, you're probably the only example of an indie hacker I know who just had that. And you had that at like the right moment in time, the beginning of the pandemic, where lots and lots of people decided they wanted to start podcasts and they want to upload their videos to YouTube or whatever. And like, you're literally the only tool in the market that could do it. Is that what you would say led to most of like the rapid growth that you've had since then? Yeah, 100%. So our mode was definitely our technological mode, and we doubled down on that. And that's what the this what brought us here. And now, now of course, competitors are trying to catch up, but then you already captured a big uh, chunk of the market, and you're ahead. And then you have to keep running because competitors are always going to be trying to catch up. It, it never ends, right? But I think growth in itself is also a mode. Luckily, uh, so if you are like a productivity tool, I don't know. There's so many productivity tools out there, and if you're just you're growing so fast. I think growing in itself is a big mode. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, one of the most amazing things about your company. Uh, you're just growing at an insane rate. Like we, we didn't say your revenue numbers, but they were quite substantial. And it's only been a year. At what point did you realize that like your growth was abnormal? I, it sounds maybe strange. I still don't really realize because I don't have a benchmark to tell, to tell the story. Like my brother and I, uh, we were doing quite well, like making some money. And then we got this investor who invested in us. And I also asked him at some point, I was actually quite shy, but like, is this, is this going well? It's like, it, it, what's the benchmark? So I don't, I don't really have a, a way of to, like, of course I have the indie hackers as I can check out indie hackers, like well, how much are they making? But other than that, I had no idea how fast do people come to one, to uh, certain numbers. So that definitely made me realize, okay, we are growing very fast. But I think it's cliche, but it's true. You never, you always want more. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of this uh, dichotomy between like your hopes and your expectations. And so your hopes, like probably you want them to be as high as possible. Like you, you hope Riverside's going to be making a billion dollars a year at some point, right? Like something crazy. And then your expectations are like, what do you think is realistic? And I think that's kind of the most, the more internal thing. Like your hopes are like, what are you striving for? And your expectations are like, what makes you happy? And I think if you fall short of your hopes, but you meet your expectations, like you can still be pretty happy. 
But if you fall short of your expectations, you probably won't feel that good. And so an example might be like with Andy Hackers when I started it, my hopes were that like I can basically build something that could be huge and like potentially world changing, right? But like my expectations were that I just want to build something that makes me enough money to survive as an indie hacker. Like I want to pay my rent. I want to be able to buy food. I want to not have to get a job. And I got to that point and like I was super happy, even though I hadn't come anywhere near like what I hoped and dreamed that I could eventually do. And I still haven't gotten to the point where like I am quite there yet. But I think what's cool about you is that your hopes seem pretty high. Like the fact that you decided to raise money means that you were like, you saw a lot of potential. And what I see with a lot of other indie hackers often is like, they're like, I'm just trying to get to $100 in recurring revenue by this time next year. And it's like, well, if you set the bar that low, yeah, like you'll probably hit it, but also you probably won't get much more than that because you're not going to be doing the things that allow you to get really big. Like you're not going to be taking those swings because you're not really thinking about it. I don't know, because I think it goes both ways. If you don't set the goal too high, it's also, it's also attainable and not discouraging. So my goal was having, for example, $2,000 per month in recurring revenue. So I think if you have an attainable goal, it can also be like, okay, if I'm there, holy shit, then, then it's amazing. I can go full time on, on it. Whereas when you have a huge goal, it's like, oh, I'm never going to get there. So I actually think it's better to just first try to set a realistic goal and then take it from there. And once you hit it, of course, it's, it's evolving. So now I have a different goal and different expectations, but I wouldn't initially, when you start off, set that huge, huge goal for yourself and huge expectations. Yeah, I like the stair step sort of approach where it's like you start small and then you keep hitting these goals, you keep getting bigger. Like what are, what are your goals right now for Riverside? What do you want to do? Yeah, I want to make a billion dollar company. We really have impact in this whole market that we're in. So otherwise, we, we really thought about this carefully when we raise money. Like, okay, what do we really want? Even for me, saying this is quite uh, like it feels a little bit uncomfortable, but it's also good when I say it, I also need to start believing it. But at this point, it doesn't really matter of course, I want to have the salary, but it's for me, it's really about, for us, it's really about impact. Having a big brand, having a name, having impact in the whole content creation is something we are striving for right now. There's a really good Paul Graham essay the other day, and he was writing about what he learned. And one of the, like, the chief lessons that he learned was that uh, the way he put it, he was basically saying, like, you don't really want to chase prestige. You want to chase kind of being the entry level option that everybody can use. And I've talked to a bunch of people about this since then. And so like Andy Hackers is kind of the entry level option. Lots and lots of different people who are brand new to entrepreneurship come to Andy Hackers and they hear like you talking about how crazy your journey has been, et cetera. And they're like, okay, okay, maybe I should do this. And so like how many people can Andy Hackers inspire to do that is kind of like my North Star. And it mostly just comes down to like the fact that like, I don't like being on the beaten path and nor do you, right? Like you could have just gone and gotten a job and I'm sure your brother is like a more than good enough developer to get a job somewhere. But like you probably something like deep inside you made you say like, I don't want to be on the beaten path. Like, I think I can do it better myself. You know, I think I can do more if I blaze my own trail. And I would like to see a world where much, many more people feel that way. And I think we're headed to that world. Like the internet's been pretty crazy. Lots and lots of people are making lots of money doing things that don't even require them to code. You know, maybe they have a clubhouse room and they're funneling people to like a paid community, or maybe they're like tweeting and then they're like writing a, a paid newsletter or something. And people are just getting more and more confidence about the fact that they can make a living on their own and they can chart their own course and they can create their own business that's like shaped in a way that lets them live a really good life. And so uh, if I can accelerate that to a significant degree, I'd love to. And like, maybe that means putting out a hundred times as many podcast episodes and having a whole podcast network and having a much bigger community. Who knows? But that's kind of my goal with Andy Hackers. And I've been at it for five years now and I don't expect to stop anytime soon. And do you have like a, 
a concrete goal in terms of like audience size you want or how many people you want to reach? How do you define that goal for your for a Yeah, community? we just look at like basically the number of conversations happening in the community and the number of listeners to like the podcast, right? And so it's like when we joined Stripe, for example, our community was super tiny. We had like a few hundred conversations a month. And now we're up to like 35,000 conversations a month. And our hope is like, okay, a couple of years from now, it'll be 10 times bigger than that, right? And that would just be massive impact and it would be massive reach. And it's kind of stressful because it's like, well, <laughs> the things that got you from like, you know, zero to 100 aren't going to get you from 100 to 1,000. Like it's never guaranteed that you're going to be able to reach that next level. And it just gets harder and harder to figure out like what you can do to get there. Uh, even though sometimes from the outside looking in, it seems inevitable. Like looking at Riverside, I'm like, oh, Nadav's growing so much. Like it's inevitable that he would have grown this much. But like on the inside, you're probably like sweating bullets, like figuring out what are we going to do? <laughs> There's so many different options. Like how do I get there? Yeah, exactly. That's something we discuss sometimes. Uh, from the outside, everything looks uh, like a clear line to, to, to a certain goal, but it's, uh, it's a bumpy ride. We were talking earlier actually about like how I keep hopping from podcast recording tool to podcast recording tool. What is, what are your thoughts? You know, like what's, what's next, you know, who's going to be number four in line or how, and how do you be number four in line? So our future vision is really to, it sounds maybe vague, but obviously when you share your vision, it becomes more, <laughs> more, more scary, but our future vision is really to empower, empower creators to very easily create content. That means, for example, it can be creating a podcast, it can be creating videos. There's so much content being created and we want to be uh, the company that's empowering these people creating all of that content. And that means presumably more than just recording because there's a whole bunch that goes into it. Exactly. So, so right now we also built a magic editor on Riverside. So once you have those files on Riverside that you recorded, you can also very easily merge the files and actually go ahead and edit the files on Riverside itself. So it becomes almost like a full-fledged platform to create content already. And there's so much around like this whole space. I mean, the sort of phrase that's been popular in the last six months or so, but much longer than that, really, is just like you're building, you're building picks and shovels. You know, people are trying really hard to do stuff online. They're trying really hard to accomplish goals, to build a hit podcast, to build a hit YouTube show, to get big on social media. And when people have a dream that's spurring them to action, if you can just be a tool that helps them accomplish that dream and helps just make it a little bit easier, then you're like in a really good spot. You know, and if I think about like all the work I do for this podcast, it's like, it's not just this recording, right? There has to be like an editing pass that gets done over this. And someone's got to splice in the intro music and the outro music. And someone's got to like write the show notes and the description and upload it to uh, Transistor or podcast host. And like, someone's got to plan guests. There's like a million different things. And like pretty much not, like no one helps me with any of this. Like you help me with recording. And then literally all the rest of it, it's like, I have to like try to find someone to like hire to do it. And it's like, I'm not the only one doing this. There's like a million people who have podcasts. So it just feels like a kind of like a golden age where there's just like, so much opportunity and so little out there to help. There's also, I think, a curious like lack of enterprise customers. So like one of the first things you told me when I when I was going to use Riverside, you were like, we just got the NFL as a customer. They're gonna use us for their <laughs> podcast. And this is like in March of last year. Like you've just gotten started. And I was like thinking about it at the time, like most companies like can't sign the NFL as a client, especially like indie hackers, right? Because like there's probably some other bigger SaaS company out there with an enterprise sales team that's got like taking them out to like drinks and lunch and stuff. What is it about the podcast space where that's not the case? You know, why is it why is it that you're able to land such big clients? Like you got Hillary Clinton on your homepage with this cool testimonial about Riverside. Like how are you landing these huge customers? I think it's because there's such a strong strong need for our product. Like they cannot use Zoom and they cannot use uh, Google Meet. So they need they need the platform. Actually, the NFL was what well, we got NFL for Product Hunt. Uh, some, some producers asked for the launch. So we did get some customer from Product Hunt, which is the NFL, which is pretty cool. 
They churned one week later. Let's <laughs> You caught me in the one week they were using us, using you. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about them. <laughs> but uh, definitely, like, I mean, Hillary Clinton is a really happy client. And our third client was a, a Dutch news website, which I read every day. So having them as a client was also like, holy shit. The fact that I can get them as a client uh, is because I can really relate to that, to that platform. Like, it's, some, it's something I read every day. It's not some American company. It's a Dutch company who I read uh, the news on every day. And we got them as a customer and not because of some strong connection we have in that company, but just because they saw our product and they were really uh, surprised by the quality we are able to give them. And explain like how you're actually getting a lot of these customers, because we've talked about the fact that you've had like this cool technological breakthrough, but were you like just hustling and recruiting people one-on-one the way you did with me? Or were you doing like social media or SEO? Like how are people even finding out about Riverside? Yeah, it's mostly a uh, word of mouth, actually, which is boring for uh, the listeners. But because we are here in an interview, so you, so all of your guests also see Riverside. So that's like the main growth driver for us. Initially, it was also me reaching out personally to people, but that was never really so effective. I think it's more more effective to validate that there's something there. If you have like direct feedback, people say people most people ignore you, which is also like tells you something about the product, and you have some people actually giving you feedback. And saying what don't they like what do they like it's funny like uh, for example a guy we both know i won't say his name but like i reached out to him he he blocked me because i reached out to him and later on he unblocked me <laughs> he unblocked me because now now i now i'm like okay he's, he's not the spammer he's just he's like you're legit part of the, part of us <laughs> yeah, right. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah in the beginning you're it's nobody it's super hard you know like you don't have any credibility and it's like i get a ton of messages from lots of people who like who knows like they could they could be super successful super smart amazing people uh, and like six months from now, but right now it's like, I don't know who you are, right? And you have to kind of push yourself through that. Like the point at which it's the hardest for anyone to take you seriously is the point at which it's probably the most important for you to constantly be reaching out to people. Yeah, that's actually very true because now it's not as important I reach out to people, but I agree initially when you're starting off, you need to push through that. And that came very natural to me because also if the politicians, like I was saying, I literally would call the politicians and would say uh, for the debating platform, Hey, you're speaking to the office of uh, our, our, our debater.tv. That was the name of our website. So they already thought, oh, this is a big company, the office, uh, or like the, the <laughs> head of uh, head of the debater. So I was always trying to like wing it until we to uh, by getting these politicians on board. So that was that really taught me like I literally could get the foreign minister of the Netherlands on our platform without any connections. Me just calling him like saying, hey, do you want to debate against other politicians? And then uh, they often would say yes, surprisingly. Yeah, it's kind of crazy once you realize like how easy it is to get certain people on the phone who previously seemed completely inaccessible. It doesn't always work, but if you hustle and you contact enough people, like you'll get some yeses, and then you can sort of parlay those yeses into more yeses, and then suddenly you've got you know the NFL or you've got uh, Hillary Clinton. What's the story behind Hillary Clinton, by the way? Because her testimonial on your your home it almost seems like. Like she did you a personal favor because she's like a big thanks to Riverside FM. Just imagine we needed a recording platform that could help us make a podcast during a pandemic. And boy, did they step up like that's the kind of testimonial that someone writes because you're like, hey, Hillary, give me a good testimonial. Uh, how did you get her to do this? Yeah, that's insane, right? Even when I when I think about it now, that's the, the fact that she did that. So her producer found out about Riverside and I gave her a pretty good surface, like help her with the setup. I even met Hillary Clinton on a call, which I was, uh, <laughs> and uh, I helped her with her mic setup, stuff like that. And afterwards, she, I heard her one episode of her. I heard her thinking 
a bunch of people I heard thinking, and thanks to the producer, this and this and such and such and such and such. And then I thought, fuck, why did she not? If only she would have thanked me, you know? And I thought, <laughs> so I thought, okay, uh, fuck it. I'll just go for it and ask the producer, hey, do you mind? Uh, would it be possible if she would give us uh, also thank us in the podcast? And uh, yeah, sure enough, she, she thanked us and I couldn't believe it as well. That's crazy. <laughs> Super nuts. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. this whole like word of mouth thing is interesting because most companies, like most founders want to grow via word of mouth. Like, wouldn't it be a dream if you could just build an app and put it out there and then people would just start using it and spreading it virally. But that's like 1% of the time, like literally never happens. I want to talk about like the physics behind your word of mouth growth though. Like you said something interesting, which is that when people use Riverside, you kind of don't use it by yourself. It's almost like gift cards. Like if I give somebody like a Hallmark card, it's a product that's meant to be shared just in the normal usage of it. Like I buy a card, I write a note in it, and then I give it to someone else. And if they didn't know anything about Hallmark cards, now they do. And it's like, I'm as a customer advertising the product and not in some like cheesy, hokey, like weird way where like, oh, we'll give you $5 if you send this to somebody. But like the very like natural usage of the product itself makes me advertise it. And it's exactly the same with podcasting and Riverside. Because if podcasters love to do anything, it's to have other podcasters on their shows and go on each other's shows and try to grow their audience. And so if you're using Zoom or Zencaster or something, and then you like join someone else's show and they're hosting you on Riverside, and you're like, what is this? and they tell you all about it, then like suddenly you're gonna do it. That to me seems like probably the strongest force for, for why you're able to grow so rapidly through word of mouth. Absolutely, it's exactly what you're saying. A lot of podcasters love coming on each other's podcasts and are often the guests are podcasters themselves. So we uh, saw perfect growth rule basically. Yeah, like I'm, I'm starting another podcast with my buddy Julian. It's not out yet, but we do like these round table things that are almost like a clubhouse call and it'll always be four of us. So we did one on podcasting. The whole topic of the episode is podcasting. And it was me, Julian, and then we got Sean Puri from the My First Million podcast. And then we got Jason Calacanist, who runs This Week in Startups and All In. And I was like, okay, we're going to do it in Riverside. And like, of course, the first thing we start talking about when we sit down and record the podcast is Riverside itself. We're like, oh, what do you think about Riverside? Blah, blah, blah. Jason was talking about potentially like <laughs> investing in Riverside. And Sean was talking about what he uses. <laughs> and then everyone was just kind of assessing the tool. you know. And it's it's so much harder for almost every other product to have that kind of natural virality, I guess. Another cool thing about what you're you're doing is is you're basically smack dab in the middle of like this remote work trend. Obviously we had a pandemic, everyone had to work remote, but like you and your brother, you're not like situated in Silicon Valley, raising from investors and like the heart of like the tech industry. Like I think you were in Amsterdam and now you're in Israel and you've always been remote. Like you're raising all this money from like investors who basically have never met you in person. And then you're building a tool that's helping people collaborate remotely. So even when 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 Gideon, who's my brother, we were always working. I'm I am still in Amsterdam, but he's still in Tel Aviv. We were always using our own platform as well as, as a way of communicating and the way of testing our own system. His internet is horrible. Well, perfect. We can try our own system, see if it holds up. <laughs> what do you think about the future of like building a remote teams and then remote communication? Like, because I assume your whole team at this point, you've got employees, you got people working with you. They're also remote as well. Yeah, I think remote is fine uh, and we'll probably keep on doing that. But I do think having some kind of core team with engineers in, in the same office, there's still something for it. And what we have noticed is uh, time zone, which is like, I'm all, only learning, probably everyone knew it already, but time zone is definitely an issue. Like if someone in the US only starts working when it's like 6 p.m. our time, it's mm -hmm. just never ending. You're always working. So the time zone is, I think, the only really barrier uh, with remote work. Yeah. What time was that, that work in progress chat that we were in Telegram the other day? And I think it was- Oh like, my God, man. It was 5 a.m. for you. <laughs> yeah. It was like 5 a.m. for me. I hadn't even gone to sleep. <laughs> it was like the middle of the day for you. 
Cortland was speaking about mental health. Meanwhile, he was awake at the 5 a.m. <laughs> well, yeah, you're you're always a fun person to talk to about that kind of stuff because you're very open yeah. about the fact that like it's not all sunshine and rainbows to be a founder. Like it's stressful. There's a lot of pressure. Like even before you were raising a lot of money from investors, you were just like, I think you telegrammed me once. You're like, how do you deal with the pressure of like hoping that the growth continues and knowing you have to do all this kind of stuff? And like, I didn't have a lot of good answers. I was like, uh, you know, make sure you're around people who who you like, who you can talk to. Try to make some friends outside of tech. But beyond that, it's kind of just a thing that you deal with. How has your environment evolved in that way? And do you still feel a lot of the pressure that you used to? Yeah, I still feel the same pressure, if not more. But I do really have this really strong feeling of gratitude. Like I said, I'm doing this together with my brother. We have uh, this amazing business going. We, we raise money from Alexis Ohanian. I mean, the founder of Reddit, who would have thought in a wildest dream that we will be able to speak to a guy like that? So that feeling of gratitude is always... Uh, overpowering and makes me be able to deal with the pressure and also it's a lot of fun like oftentimes me and my brother are just online on riverside working together and having fun while we're doing it like it's not all as serious as it looks from the outside it's of course yeah Yeah. i think having a brother also i mean obviously i work with my brother we're talking every day basically and it's like we're not only talking about work we're talking about our personal lives and dating and, and like just childhood like we both just turned 34 on monday and so our mom sent us like cards and stuff so like she's on the call with us talking about stuff and like i think as i've been working on indie hackers it's just become much more i've become much more like grateful that like oh this is a cool time in my life where i get to be this close with my brother and work with him on something meaningful and like yeah maybe the numbers aren't going the way we want them to this month or something or maybe something else happens or something stressful but like if you have somebody that you actually want to endure that journey with then the hard parts are much easier i think Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And I'm even doing it with my, our older brother as well. So we are three brothers running the company. That makes a lot of fun. Like some, sometimes we have this, we have these team meetings and then, okay, I take, I, I start speaking, then my other brother and my other brother, and then, okay, now it's over to the team members. It's like, <laughs> it's a bit strange. But <laughs> That's cool. So your third brother, was he a co-founder or did he join later? No, he was not a co-founder. Uh, he's always been involved also with the debating platform. He was the moderator. Uh, he was the more mature guy <laughs> who knew how to ha- get the processes right. And uh, he was still working for this really cool startup. And then uh, I finally got to convince him to join Riverside. So, uh, mm. yeah. Very cool. Well, listen, Adav, I think what you're doing is pretty amazing. And I'm inspired to see, I mean, you kind of made the transition from like, indie hacker we hope this works it's gonna we hope it makes a couple thousand dollars a month to like full-blown fully funded founder we're trying to build like a unicorn company what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned that's helped you get through all of this that people who are you know maybe where you were a year ago uh could take away don't let all these big companies discourage you to go all in on what you want to do because oftentimes it just starts with a very small project and then it gets some traction and having that initial traction that really gives so much motivation to keep going at least for me Having even one paying customer, it doesn't even really matter what you're doing, but having just a paying customer, I think that gives so much external motivation to keep going. And uh, you don't know where you're going to end. I love it. Start small. And uh, it's almost like a positive flywheel where like, whenever you get any sort of win, one paying customer, you know, a little bit of traction, you can use that to increase your confidence and use that to push harder and increase your motivation and push harder and get the next thing. And before you know it, you're, <laughs> you're a completely different person. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with Riverside and anything else you've got going on? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Nadav Kieson, N-A-D-A-V-K-E-Y-S-O-N. Nadav Kieson, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure. <laughs>